Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show. I'm your host, Marsha Witeka. Conversations plus connections equals community. Those are my three C's. The heart of my show is what's your story? It's my belief we all have stories. Some are similar, others are uniquely different. Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me today with my guest, Mary Gillerman. Hi, Mary. Hi, Masha. It's good to be here. Very nice to have you joining me on this happy Valentine's Day. It's the perfect day for you to share your love story because that's what we're going to be talking about. You co-authored and edited John Gillerman, The Man, The Myth, The Movies. It's a fabulous book about your late husband, and we're going to be talking about that a lot today. But before we do, I always like people are going to hear right, right, right away that you have an accent. So please tell us a little bit about yourself, Mary. Well, yes, I came from the UK uh, to the USA to marry John in 1999. And um, I was thinking what I could say that fitted the day. And I thought one huge thing I'm really grateful for is that I had this experience of being loved so deeply and knowing right from the beginning when we decided we were together Uh, that it was going to last until one of us died, which would probably be him because of the age difference. And that's how obviously it turned out. Um, And the the kernel of that is, you know, he would grab my shoulders every now and again and say, quite fiercely, do do you know how much I really love you? And I would say yes. And he, I could feel that he saw me more deeply than I knew myself. And it's a really strange feeling, but a very wonderful gift to feel so deeply loved that he knew something about how special I was to him that I didn't know from the inside. That's beautiful. That You know, yeah. um, we're both widows. We both would love yeah. to be able to hug our husbands today and wish them a happy <laughs> Valentine's Day. And, you know, we had our sort of traditional things that we did on Valentine's Day. It usually uh, resulted around something that he made because he was a really good chef and he loved to cook. Mm. And, um, but to hear, you, to hear you say what you said about John is profound. And, and I suppose today sort of adds to that, to know that you were so deeply loved. And my guess is, Mary that as deeply as he loved you, I am certain that he knew how deeply you loved him. So you grew up in the UK, um, mm-hmm. and we're going to hear more about that and and just about your relationship with John. For For our listeners who don't know who I'm talking about, you will perhaps as I go on. John Gillerman directed... 34 films, and including some mega, mega films. I'm just going to mention a few. The Towering Inferno, King Kong, Death on the Nile, 
and the Blue Max. These were tremendous films that he did. And I know that we're going to be talking about your book as we go through this. For those of you that are listening, there's a great website. And I'm going to spell John's name, the last name, Mary's last name, just in case those of you don't know how to spell it. So John is the typical J-O-H-N. Gillerman is spelled G-U-I-L-L-E-R-M-I-N. And you can go dot .com and you can go to the website. So, And I'll make sure that that's in our blog, Mary, when the show is over. So let's start off talking about John. Tell us about John. Well, I'm going to read this list I, I wrote down when I was thinking about John uh, to begin with. Larger right. than life, passionate, intense, determined, quarrelsome, curmudgeonly, <laughs> bad-tempered and insecure. <laughs> he was like all, all of those things uh, mishmashed together. But I think my favorite thing about him was how passionate he was. So he's sitting in his recliner chair. He's in his late 80s. He can't walk very far anymore. We don't go out much anymore. And he, when he hears some jazz music, he loves like the opening tune in that uh, Sydney Bechet tune, I think, uh, opening tune in um, Midnight in Paris. He would play an imaginary saxophone with such mm. intensity. <laughs> and uh, when we were listening to Mozart's like adagio movements, which are so moving, he, he'd turn to me with tears in his eyes and oh. he'd look at me to see if I was crying too, and I was. <laughs> so, you know, we had that connection with we were always larger than life than many of our contemporaries. And I know I suffered for that in my adolescence. I stood out like a sore thumb. <laughs> Why and did you say I think that? probably did too. Uh, because I, I went to a school, I went to a school before there were comprehensive schools I went to, or before they were universal. I went to a grammar school. It was right next to the Dagenham Ford factory. And 90% of the children had passed the scholarship exam to go to a grammar school rather than a secondary modern and they, it was hard for them to embrace the opportunity for good quality learning and good teachers. And so I got into trouble because I was solidly middle class and I loved Shakespeare and I loved learning. And uh, none of the boys would read Shakespeare in class. And I got these, I never got the feminine part, but I got these juicy male leads, right? Iago <laughs> and Prospero and Luther in the Luther play uh, because they, they couldn't, they couldn't open up to learning and enthusiasm, so I couldn't shut my enthusiasm down, even though I wanted to belong. <laughs> and so I, I did stand out, and I, I wasn't treated very nicely because of it. <laughs> so I guess that's a form of being bullied, right, in some ways? Yeah, it probably wasn't quite. Well, occasionally there were things that would count as bullying. Not, nothing yeah. physical, but being shut oh, out good. of the classroom and stuff like that. <laughs> Uh, well, not, not fun to live through when you're a sensitive teenager. Certainly. But, you know, clearly, and like I, I know I'm going to keep referring, referring back to Valentine's Day because when we mm. scheduled this podcast, I don't think I realized, because I didn't know that much about you or John, the significance right. of this particular day. So I'm just curious, uh-huh. how did you guys meet? And, and was it love at first sight? Yeah, it really was. 
um, he, he wouldn't quite commit to whether it was love at first sight for him, but I think it was, <laughs> it certainly was for me. And um, yeah, so I, I'm involved in a small uh, publishing group called, um, not, not the people that publish my book, but, but um, a small publishing group called Sun Daughter Press. And um, so I was invited to a dinner party of like cultural, creative people. This is in uh, around March, February, March, 1998. And John was over in London, which didn't happen very often. He was over because he continued to write scripts after he didn't get films anymore. And there was one, he was meeting an Italian producer to see about getting it made, which didn't happen. Um, so he was at the party too. And um, I mean, the dinner party. And so he's on the other side of the room and he's holding court. You know, he liked to gather people around him and tell his film stories and, and you know, his, his British voice, you see, because even with his French name, he was brought up in England. He never got an American accent like me. And um, mm-hmm. so he's holding court on the other side of the room. And I thought, God, he's, he's handsome and he's dynamic. And, and I just really fell for him. And, um, you know, then later when we were sitting at the table and stuff like that, we, we got talking and fell even harder. <laughs> so. that's, that's so funny in that the people that organized this dinner party, do you think they were aware of what was happening between the two of you? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I didn't know them very well because it was, like, not really work a party related. of friends. It was a party. It was work-related. So... Right. Um, I don't really know what they thought about it. I didn't have yeah. much contact with them after. But I, I should think it was... <laughs> I imagine it was pretty clear there was a lot of mutual interest because I don't think either of us talked to anyone else at the table. You know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> when did you have your first date after you met at that dinner party? Oh, oh pretty soon after. So I don't remember exactly because it's so long ago. But, yes. uh, you know, we, stuck, we went out to meals and... And uh, he he extended his stay in England by a, a week or so, much to the chagrin of his daughter, who was having her first baby, who was her only baby, who was in fact born while he was still in England. That, that wasn't very popular with her, but that was he was so keen on seeing as much of me as he could. Right, and then he came and, back know, to the good time to mention. Do you mind uh-huh. if I mention the, no. the kind of how unusual this was? Really, really unusual and I'll explain the circumstances but for 20 years I've been involved in a group where we um, worship the feminine divine and I lived in a household of women and had done for 20 years and uh, we you know we were interested in um, old-fashioned things and traditional things and um, philosophy and so on and I didn't I didn't go out in the modern world very much I did this one for work I went out for work things and publicity things and that's about it and um, we had a few male friends, but I didn't kind of, I didn't date. I didn't date at all. And um, it wasn't on my horizon. So I meet this man and I'm really interested. And he said, I would like to write a script about your unusual way of life. And this will sound strange to a modern viewer, who, a modern listener who's used to going out and about and, you know, free to do what they want. And... Um, the only reason I could really spend a lot of time with John, it wasn't like getting permission exactly, but just we didn't mix outside our, our household. 
so the the, re, the reason I was free to spend time with him was because he was a, a, a film director, even though he wasn't making films anymore. So he had contacts, and somebody writing a script about what we were doing was like good for us if it came off. So I was free to be with him. And he came back to, um, this is another love story bit. <laughs> he came Go back ahead. to L.A. Yeah, thanks. He came back to L.A., and he really missed me, and he would FedEx me, like, about seven or eight beautiful cards from Malibu Colony card shop, um, but he'd put different things in. He'd, I'd get, like, a FedEx every few days and um, for a couple of weeks. And then he said, uh, you know, please, please, please come to Malibu. So I went to Malibu on the, to be honest, pretext of writing a script together, and it wasn't really at all. It was just... <laughs> <laughs> to visit him and see him. And, and then that was in May. And in, before July, in July, he, he came to live for a whole year in England. Mm. And um, he, you know, he was 74, 73 or 4. He didn't like, I didn't know this about him then, but he didn't like change. He didn't like moving. He didn't really like letting his, his um, lovely house out to somebody else. But he so wanted to be connected to me that he let his beautiful house out, including a beautiful pool table. <laughs> and he came to live in the Essex countryside near where I lived in North uh, East London. And um, that, that it, it took me a long time to feel, should I be leaving this thing I've been committed to for 20 years? Um, but in the end, I did. And by the October, I was living with him and we knew we were going to get married as soon as his divorce was finalized he'd been on his own for three years but it was one of those slow divorces mm-hmm. and so that's what that's what happened we you know we lived together in the countryside which we both love and um then we came to live in Malibu uh, with the intention of selling and going back to England because of all my different commitments and then he said um I don't want to leave the sun and the sea and the mountains and mm-hmm. I went oh this is someone who makes decisions on their own and doesn't talk to his, his <laughs> suspecting wife about them. This is not good. And then I stopped and I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I prefer it here. <laughs> Funny. So, so, so we just went on from there. We never thought about leaving again. <laughs> so you stayed in London? No, the other way around. By then, you, we, oh, we came, you came back here. To, yeah, I came here to Malibu in July 1999 with the after after October to July living with him in in Essex. He I came see. back, I came back with him, and we were going to sell Malibu home and move back to England. And then he just decided, you know what, I don't want to leave the sunshine. And I thought, yeah. oh, this is a good point. This is very beautiful here, and having sunshine nearly every day is sure. Sure, it's no accident. There are lots of English people here and Scottish and Irish and everything. The weather is so amazing. Yes, and you know, it's funny you should mention that because um, for those people that are listening, um, we have had unseasonably warm weather here where where we live. I I mean, who has um, 80-plus degree weather this time of year? We've got people that are living on the East Coast going, could you just send us a little bit of that? So we are very fortunate in that regard. So it sounds like it's it was quite a love story, Mary. Yeah. Right. It was. So 
And the, the, you, you know, another thing, Marsha, about it that please. Was, I think I mentioned it briefly, but I don't know how I knew this. And it wasn't just that he'd been married for 42 years and he didn't want to be divorced. And he still loved his wife. He was in love with me, but he still loved his wife. And luckily for our, our courtship and marriage, I was somebody that was cool with that. I, I liked it that he still cared about his wife so much. But what I knew really early on, um, and, and one of the reasons I didn't date was I hated that whole cycle of you date, you break up, you date, you break up. I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that kind of heartbreak anymore. And one mm-hmm. of the things I knew really early on was I thought, he'll never stop loving me. That makes me want to cry. I do not know how I was so sure, but I absolutely knew it was true. And I was less certain about myself because I didn't have a 42-year marriage. I had no marriages in my background. Right. Uh, but it, it, proved, it proved to be true about me as well. I, did, I, I really loved him. Well, I, it's, it's obvious. And, you know, just what, what occurs to me, what you just said, is that while he was divorcing, he loved his wife, and love takes on many different forms. Mm. You know, we can love things, we can love people, we can love experiences, and that just makes us lovable, loving people. And I think mm-hmm. that's what I've heard you say about John. But I do think this is really funny, because you and I have talked, and you said, John told you, don't marry me. And I'm going, what? Why did he say that? <laughs> Well, he he said, don't marry me, I'm an impossible, I'm impossible, and don't marry me, I'm an old curmudgeon, and things like that. And he he had a really good grip of psychology, in fact. He didn't ever study it, but um, in the field he did. He, he once said in an interview, right near the end of his life, he said his favorite thing what, about being a director was that everyone in the cast and crew came to him with their problems. Like, I was going, What? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so so it's a bit of uh, intuitive reverse psychology, I think, and it and it and it was very helpful. You know, he warned me he was a difficult person. I didn't go in with rose-colored glasses on. Quite early on, I saw that he got incredibly tense when he was driving, and incredibly tense when he was cooking, and he and that he he would shout, and he, he, it was awful in, in lots hmm. of ways. It was very difficult. It's absolutely true. He was very difficult. And, and like me, he had enthusiastic swings. If he was writing a script, he went a bit manic. If I walked in the room quite innocently, I was shouted at for disturbing him. I mean, he was impossible. It's true. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, he was so full of life and so full of enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, he cared about things so deeply. Um, so, you know, no, he wasn't perfect, and nor was I. I had depressions too, like him, and periods of being a bit excitable. Somehow we just made it really, really work for both of us. Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the things you said about him when we first started speaking about him was that you mentioned that he was larger than life, but the next thing you said about him is that he was passionate. And it doesn't sound mm. like he reserved his passion for just the positive. Sometimes he was passionate because, right? I mean, he was a man with intense passion. And that happens sometimes when you do get a little irritated when you're driving or 
something does go wrong while you're cooking. You're going, darn, I didn't, why did that water boil out? Or whatever he was doing that was annoying him. Because that is a, uh, that is a form of passion. And you were, you married him despite being the warning. So why did you do that? Uh, well, it was the real, um, I can't think of the right word, pull or magnet. It's like, I, I, it was just such a lot of love and also he was, he was the only person in my life you know, when he was coming to England and I was still obviously living in the household when he was first coming I was living with my women friends and companions and I was terribly torn I was terribly torn between how much I loved him and the, and the life I'd been living for 20 years and um, I've completely forgotten my point <laughs> Well you, I, I was asking I was you you married him despite the fact that he was warning you not oh, to, yes. and I'm just wondering. Right. Yes, so he arrived in England, and I was depressed with this internal conflict. I was mm-hmm. in a, quite a bad depression. But I found I was comfortable in his company from inside the depression. And if you're somebody listening who's experienced ex- really low depressions, um, they're torture. You, you torment yourself the whole time with your negative thoughts. I'd never been comfortable in somebody else's presence. Comfortable in inverted commas, not comfortable when when I was happy. But there was something that was relaxing about being with him, uh, even from a place of feeling awful. And that really made an impression on me. And it was a sign of things to come because from my taking time, you know, he was there 24-7 because of his age and retired, long retired, already been retired 10 years. Um... But I, I said, I've got to build a career. I've got to have something to do after you're not here anymore. So mm-hmm. I went off to college or to become a psychotherapist. I did my training, etc. But I made sure I was home four days out of seven because I didn't know how long he was going to live. And I wanted as much time as this wonderful, mostly companionship with him as I could get. And we, we were always companionable. We did a lot together. You know, we... We'd go driving together when he was fit enough. We'd always go shopping together. I had to do it on my own a bit later on. But we went shopping together. We went out for meals. We went to the academy when the screeners were on. We watched the screeners together. We watched snooker, which he loved and I came to love. We watched tennis together. I mean, we, we when I was home, we spent 24-7 together. And um, we're never tired of each other's company, even when one of us was depressed. I don't really understand it. I've never mm-hmm. had that experience with anybody else. But it was true. You know, we, we'd we go for a walk with one of us being depressed because we were both up and down types. And we'd find some comfort in that companionship and in the nature and and, and just being together. Right. I can visualize that, Mary. I can. I can I can picture that because he was a complex man. That's what I'm hearing yeah. you say. But yeah. I sense that perhaps you too are complex. Um, this mm-hmm. must have been very different for you after being in this communal <laughs> living with all of these women to suddenly find yourself, frankly, a megastar. Did you realize <laughs> just how famous he was? Well, I don't know if it... 
I don't know if he is, is that famous because the days wasn't the sort of era when people really knew directors' names. I see. You know, his career ended in about 86, 88 with a, with a flop and a TV movie. Someone told me at his memorial he was offered a lot of work on TV. And he'd work, he produced like a couple of films a year and, and you know, 12 or more TV episodes in the 1950s. He, he didn't want to go back to TV. He'd, he'd made it to being, you know, a, a big director. He didn't want to go backwards. So he never did any TV. And TV didn't have the prestige that it has now with, no, you know, with really true. good directors working for it. So he made sure his career ended. And, and that, I mean, he's pretty lucky he married a psychotherapist. And I tell you why. Because <laughs> the reason why is that he'd lost his purpose. Because his purpose was directing. And he was uh, bitter about, he, did, he had one masterpiece, which was acknowledged as a masterpiece when it was released in, in 2011, uh, called Rapture. And he loved that film, and it was the only film where he had complete artistic control, and it shows. It's like head and shoulders above any other film he ever made. And um, he loved that film, and he'd say, I only like one film of mine, and it's Rapture, and only half a dozen people have seen it. And they <laughs> didn't promote it when it came out. It wasn't promoted, because it was black and white at a time when they were nearly moving. Most things were color. And so he didn't own or even remember any of his other work. And I set about, I did two things. I set about collecting anything that was in existence originally on, on uh, tape. And then I bought up everything that came out and we watched it together. And he'd mm. say, whoa, not bad. I don't remember a single shot. Every time he said the same thing. But he gr <laughs> gradually got to appreciate his own work so he, he stopped being bitter and I worked so hard to give him an alternate purpose I said why don't we you like sailing why don't we buy a boat so we had a purpose looking for a boat and then we had a purpose sailing the boat and then when you got too old to feel comfortable doing that I said um well uh, I can't remember what I said but I just oh well, he eventually got to doing little carp he liked carpentry so he, in the end, persuaded himself to make little things in the house. He made a doggy door when we got a dog in the glass panel door downstairs. He made little shelves in the bathroom. They're so amateur, but I adore them because it wasn't just that he made them, but because he made them because my background encouragement of him to find feelings of accomplishment in things other than directing films, which he wasn't going to get. <laughs> Um, right. paid off in the end, you know. And he, when we when we came here to Topanga, he said, you'll have to do everything. I'm not having anything to do with it. I'm too old to move. But if we're going to move, you have to do everything. So then, then he got into designing how the layout of the house should be with the architect <laughs> and ended up uh, designing the remodel downstairs, you know. So he just, I ha the doctor and he both said to me, uh, he'd have been dead long ago if he hadn't married me. And, you know, we can't know when that would have been. But, we, mm -hmm. were, you know, I used to say to God, please give me 10 years. And uh, she gave me 17 and a half of knowing him. And I thought, well, you know, that's nearly double what I asked for. That's pretty cool. Not and, bad. Um, yeah. Yeah. How old was he when he and died, Mary? He was just six weeks short of 90 years old. All right. 
just before his birthday. But it yeah. sounds like he was always engaged, whether it was yeah. fixing the doggy door or making those shelves. His mind was always engaged, and and you were able to witness that because, as you said, yeah. you went back. I mean, there's quite a difference in age between the two of you. Yeah. And um, for you to go back and say, all right, I need to be thinking about myself as well and who I am, who Mary is, Got went and got um, educated and, 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 and became um, a therapist. I think you've been at this for, what, over 35 years? Is that right? Yeah, I got a license here because you have to, but I was in my 20s when I first started uh, training in therapy. Really? So mm. you knew even back then when you were living in that household that that was your interest? Yeah, I, I mean, and what happened over the years, because I was living in a spiritual household and I wasn't out in the world working, was I did a lot of work with um, visitors and, um, um, what do you call them, you know, household members. I did a lot of work with trauma. I developed my own way, a very gentle way of working with um, dissociation and fragmentation. Um, and um, it's got more powerful over the years. And um, I really, I really love all the gifts that I feel Spirit gave me for being able to help people heal. Mm-hmm. It means a lot to me. When you when you referred to Rapture, um, um, you mentioned to me that he didn't like any of his films except that movie. Why? Why mm. do you suppose that was? Well, he was like a huge Ingmar Bergman fan, you know, who is a Swedish uh, director who did kind of esoteric black and white films. And John met Ingmar Bergman uh, when he was filming King Kong because he was absolutely fascinated in the in the gorilla model. And mm-hmm. he used to come on King Kong set. So John got a chance to talk to him in person and he said to him, you know, where do your films come from? And Ingmar Bergman said, they come from my dreams. Filled his, mm. filmed his own dreams. So I'm giving that introduction talking about Rapture because John wanted to make this unusual story of a little girl who was like, is she a, a you know, a teenager, I mean, but is she a bit crazy or isn't she And in, in this isolated house in the countryside which was moved from the original book to, to Brittany. And, um, and, and she... Uh, Create, she wants something of her own as a kind of outcast in her own house so she creates a scarecrow and then there's a, an escaped convict who's a very young Dean Stockwell and um, mm. and he hides out at their place and she thinks the scarecrow's come to life or does she think like does she know and that's it's a very poetic film and it's a wonderful love story and it's it's a bit sensitive in this day and age of Me Too uh, because uh, Dean Stockwell was 29, very respectful to her in real life on set, uh, and she was 15. And yeah. so it is a disparate age love story. Uh, and I myself was, um, I write about this in the book, I was molested by a school teacher. I thought it was consensual, but I was only 15, so of course it wasn't oh consensual. But nobody talked about that in the 1960s. You can't imagine how different it is. It's so different you don't realize you don't know that it's abuse 
and mm. um, oh, the, the grown-up did. <laughs> but, right. But the teenager did, that was me didn't. And the, John's filming of a, of a story with a big age difference was so tender and so, uh, well, just so tender, so tender and mm. so loving and so not salacious that um, it healed me every time I watched it. Makes me want to cry. It had just t- telling you that it it really healed all the confusion. I don't even understand it myself. I just know it happened. It was wow. so, and I I watched that film so many times, and sometimes with uh, women friends of mine who I knew had sexual abuse histories as well, because it's way more common than people realise. Um, and none of them were offended by it. Hmm. None of them. Because something about the way he did it, and what a what a challenging subject to do, and that to be able to show it now, now in the current time when people are so much more aware of the potential, you know, that it's normally real exploitation, and you could easily think it still was, <laughs> but see the film and decide for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to pull to pull off. Uh, in, completely engaging a sympathetic audience in 2021-2022 with that subject matter. I think it's just part of showing what an artist he is. Right. Do you think that was your favorite movie of all the ones he did? My favorite movie. Without question, it's my favorite movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely my favorite movie. I mean, I've, I've watched it probably a dozen times. Yeah. And it's I, I've never only seen, one of I've never seen it. I, I really should make um, a, an effort to find it. And I know that um, I'll be linking a lot of his films back to your um, to his website because I know that that's where you mm. are doing all the promotion for John. Um, that's something I need to put on my to-do list because I've, I've never seen it. Um, so you were talking about his passion. But, and you mentioned um, that he had a bit of a temper. Um, he had, I think you mentioned earlier when we first started speaking that he wrote frequent love notes and poems to you. Um, mm. This book seems to be yours to him. Tell us about that. What does that mean? Well, what, what happened was there's this influential series in England called British Filmmakers. And they had published 26 books in that series. And they published books that weren't just about directors. They did, I can't remember who, who it was. But, but like, why wasn't John in that list? Why, why was there no book about John? And at the time, I mean, partly it was the way he got himself a bad reputation. People don't understand how his, his sorry, I'm going, uh, I'm going all over the place. That's um, okay. It's a conversation. Go away. <laughs> All right. No, really. So, so he was a perfectionist, and he was an alcoholic, and he was verbally abusive, and um, and he was French. So and he and he had PTSD. If you're going to use a label, uh, okay. I saw that over the years that he he had PTSD from being so beaten in the public school system. You know, from corporal punishment, and. Um, so he had childhood trauma. He picked up dead bodies as a teenager and put them in sacks Ooh. from World War II. 
you know, he, he, he had a lot of trauma. And all those things together, you know, drinking with the other, he lied about his age to volunteer, uh, and all the pilots were terrified of being killed, so they drank scotch, you know, whether they were underage or not, which is 18 wow. in England. And they were all scared. So, so he had all the ingredients for being someone who was going to have rages. And, um, and, and yet some of it is just being French. Uh, and that part of it was never understood. So before he died, his Wikipedia entry was 100%, well, 90% about his terrible temper. And, oh um, uh, what, and it changed after he died because there was so much more material, obituary material to put in. Um, mm-hmm. Charlton Heston said about him that, you know, some, I can't remember that quote, but he was a, a, a very talented director, but irascible. You know, everyone mm-hmm. said he was difficult, and he was. But uh, I've seen it said that he hated his crews or his crews hated him. And it's so not true. He really mm-hmm. loved the people he worked with. But he wanted it exactly the way he wanted it, right? He was a director like that. And yet sometimes he worked quietly and steadily. Probably, to be frank, when he was depressed. <laughs> I know he's depressed on Towering Inferno. And there's a wonderful extra on the Blu-ray of Towering Inferno that's um, taken of him directing. And somebody comments, oh, you know, the other producer who directed the fire scene, Erwin Allen, you know, he's always coming and strutting with his entourage. And John never did. He just worked quietly and steadily. And he never raised his voice. I thought, hmm. yeah, okay, he doesn't look depressed. But he, but that was when he was depressed about towering inferno. He didn't raise his voice. When he was full of passion and fire, he'd also go to shouting at everyone, which was not comfortable for other people, obviously. Sure, boy, he was he was a complicated man, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is there is there anything else you'd like us to know about him that maybe you haven't already mentioned? Well, I've already mentioned about being spiritual, and here's a funny thing. This is a funny story. Some, some of your listeners probably won't believe this funny story. But he would say to me, there's nothing after death, you know. And I'd say to him, well, wait and see. And um, I was um, doing a certain type of healing called family constellation, and you get people to and it's like a collective unconscious thing. The pe- people are representing different parts of you or the story that comes up, and they just feel what's going on. So here I am going for help because uh, I've got this. It doesn't really matter why I went for help. And um, mm-hmm. so I chose someone to represent the male representative, and this man started hopping around the room and hopping up and down around the room, and he said, I'm a hot air balloon. I'm not a hot air pilot. I'm a hot air balloon, and I'm so curious. And I went, ooh, because that was John's voice. John's voice that came through this person saying, I don't mean it's exactly the same as John's voice, but the way he said it, and I'm so curious. And what was happening, I think, in terms of people that might understand this, is he was drawn, because I was focusing on him, you know, his soul was drawn, and he, he wasn't used to kind of navigating being out of a body. So he was kind of bouncing close and bouncing up again. That's how I visualized him using the metaphor hot air balloon. <laughs> and, um, 
the, the person facilitating it directed us to have a conversation. And the, the, the man representing John uh, said all these loving things to me and I was saying loving things back and people were crying watching it because the love was so intense. And then the facilitator said to me, say to John, I am alive and I dance with death. And then the person representing John said, I am dead and I dance with life. And I thought, wow, what a beautiful poetic ending to this amazing experience. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've actually started a second solo show uh, called uh, Love on the Other Side of Death because I had so many experiences where it's not as much now. It's nearly it's seven years in September. I don't feel him as much now. But I did have so many experiences of, of feeling him close and protective and loving and interested. And I believe he saved me from a serious car accident. <laughs> Just wow. strange things, you know. So, and he was somebody who didn't believe in God because he was he had when he was young, but he was so stricken when his uh, only son was killed in a car crash. He was very angry with God because of that. Ooh. And he tolerated my devotion. It probably quite interested him, my devotion, because he did love the, fe- the feminine in me. But um, he, consciously, he didn't have a belief. And yet, there he is after death, and there he is kind of being close. So that's my experience anyway. <laughs> wow. Well... That, that is certainly trauma to lose a child, <clears throat> and no, you, you've not already even disc- yeah, yeah I, no, I can't. You're, you're absolutely right. For people that are fans of his, do you have any special tips for them? Well, I think um, please do use the links on the website. It's the page is called Watch Films. Mm-hmm. And I have to update it. I was hoping to do it before we broadcast, but I will update it this week. Um, okay. That I, I, I tell people where to find, to watch films for free. Mm-hmm. I tell people where they can stream them or buy them. And I go through, I use all the beautiful posters that are in the illustrated book. I, I put underneath every poster a direct link to where you can watch or, or buy the films. And That's that, great. And I would recommend all his um, early black and white films, the pre-America films, you know, like the pre-1968 films. They're so unusual. Um, In the book, I have a whole chapter on his love of the feminine and how that came out and the way he portrayed uh, women characters. They're complex. They have a right to existence. They're powerful. They're soft as well. I mean, he had an all-rounder of femininity that really matched mine, and I kind of mm-hmm. knew more about why we were in love and why we would have lasted so long uh, when I really thought about his his films. And so, so, and the last thing was look for the poet. Like Rapture shows him as a poet, but it's there in bits of other people's uh, other mm-hmm. films he made, and uh, he he can really. Um, open your heart to his vision of, of of passion about life if you if you're looking for that. Well I I I I'm gonna go on in just a moment to talk about what you're currently doing, but I do think the title of your book, besides mentioning his name, which would be obvious, The Man, the Myth, the Movies, that really encapsulates what this book is about. 
and um, mm-hmm. it's easily purchasable on Amazon. And I, I hope that people will consider purchasing it. I, I love the cover, by the way. So let's Thank let's you. spend these last remote remaining moments talking about you specifically. Um, you just said something that I didn't know about. What is what are you doing called Love on the Other Side of Death? Is that what is that going to be? That, that's I, I've done uh, a solo show that I actually performed just before the pandemic hit, and um, and then I started writing a, a second solo show about my strange experiences about John and other experiences I've had about death. I've had three, four of the, the four most important people in my life died between 2015 and 2021. And I was present at the death of three of those four people. Oh boy. And I had, I had experiences about helping and seeing them in my mind's eye pass over and things like that. Oh so um, I'm, still, I'm still interested in writing that show. But um, I decided to go back and completely rewrite my first show. <laughs> Let's uh, talk about that. So, yeah. So, so I'm understanding, Mary. So, love on the other side of death. That's that's out there in the future. That's not something you're currently working on. You are actually uh-huh. rewriting your one woman show that was called From Crazy to Sane, or am I? Yeah. Okay. Tell us yeah, about I, that. I did. I did it. Yeah, I did a very challenging thing, and I was really pleased with the script because I took on such a challenge to try and get this into, you know, 70 minutes of one person on stage. Wow, one wow. Solo, show, solo shows are the hardest form of theatre there is because you're one person on stage, and you, you try and bring your story, in this case it was my own life story, to life by acting out the different characters. Um, they might be real characters like John's in my show. Um, different age personalities of me are in my show. Uh, wow. But you also, n- not so much in my show, but you might have like shame or rage or passion uh, talking and having characters in the show. It's a wonderful art form and incredibly difficult to do. And when I started doing it, I didn't know that more than 90% of the people who were doing it with me were professional actors because I wasn't. And it mm. is very challenging. But anyway, I was trying to tell the story of how I got better from what's labeled as bipolar disorder without ever taking any pharmaceutical drugs, just with hard work and discipline and love and things, and get to, taking feedback from people about what a pain in the neck I was when I was manic. <laughs> and um, over the years, I, it took me a long time, but uh, it was a really interesting journey. And the other part of my journey was uh, receiving receiving things from the from the other side, you know, receiving unseen things, receiving guidance from what I call the fairies, who are like servants to higher up angels, and uh, also something I called um, in the play I called that part guiding light, and then I called another character ancestral energies, <clears throat> and a person who works. Um, shamanically said to me that you have um, powerful forces coming through you, you Mary, uh, uh, devotional forces and ancestral energies. And those two don't usually come through in the same person. And they're very difficult to manage. And I thought mm. you can say that again. And so part of the, you know, it was part of um, my challenge to get well and be balanced was that I was flooded with all these 
And I think this happens much more widely than people know. People with mental health difficulties are, are, are often trying to manage things that we would once in ancient times have, or still in the East still are, we would have had teachers. We would have been initiated. We would have been guided. We would have had rituals. And here we are with all these kind of insights and things bursting through and you can't manage them. You, you don't know how to manage all the energy and you think, oh my God, I'm so special. When I was young, I was thinking, oh, I'm so special that I'm getting these things. And, and um, you feel so important. And be- coming to believe in God and being devotional and having this image of something that was so much huger than I could ever be, I was really part of what helped me get well. But also I'd get all this magical stuff coming through and uh, spiritual stuff coming through that, I, that I, was hard to handle. And mm-hmm. I just got better and better at it over the years until now I don't get excited. I just go, oh, oh, is that what you want me to do? Oh, okay, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> and I developed a, a deeper devotion and a complete attitude of surrender to service, like my whole life's in service to God the Mother that I believe in. And so I'm kind of led through life. And in fact, I was led just recently to the most extraordinary thing that I didn't expect at all, which was uh, adopting an adult of 35 years old. This person, Mm. my son now called Michael, um, he had a really rough childhood. He actually asked me to manifest the mother archetype. And um, he knew I dealt in archetypes. And um, it came through, that came through me so strongly that then I heard that I was supposed to adopt him. And um, I was pretty nervous. And I said to him, "Um, I could offer you something um, if you'd like to hear it. (laughs) He said, yes, go for it. And I said, "Um, I I could um, adopt you and be your mother. I'd already looked at legal adult adult adoption was an option in California in 29 other states, 28 other states. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Um, hmm, I'd like that. Let's do it. (laughs) Wow. So, so we we have, and we're just waiting for the final papers to come through. And quite soon after that, this beautiful poem and vow came through me. And I said, you know, do you want to hear this? Do you want to take this vow? That was like a, an adoption vow. Mm-hmm. And um, and he did. He did want to, and he did do it. And um, he now lives in my attic room in my house in Tango. And wow. we are both really happy in this bond. But that's the sort of thing that happens when you're led by spirit because nobody goes out and says to their tenant, who's otherwise a stranger, <laughs> I adopt you. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's very much, it's very much led. And, and uh, indications in the, you know, I'm a collage artist as well and I've got um, a set of cards I've made that reflect archetypes. And there are lots of cards uh, that are about John in there, you know, maybe six or seven. And um, they come up when he's uh, approving of something. So I know he approves of, of this new development in my life. <laughs> I love this. I, I, and, you know, um, I don't know that I know of anybody besides yourself that has actually adopted an adult. And we're not talking about a 22-year-old. I believe you said he's 37. Is that what you said? He's 35 right now. He's 36 in April. Okay, so he's 35. But what a beautiful blending 
of being able to continue to show and receive love. Just like we said at the top of the hour, love has many different um, definitions. And we don't even all have the same definition of love. One might say, well, I really like that a lot. One might say, oh, I just love that. You know, it's, (laughs) it's very interesting, the choice of words that we use to describe our emotions and um, the fact that you were led by spirit to adopt this this man um, is really remarkable and and so inspiring. Um, there could be people listening to this podcast right now that have been listening to your love story about you and John that might be here we are, you know, just shortly before we're going to conclude this podcast together, saying to themselves, Oh, my, I never thought of doing something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't know, Mary, when people have conversations, and I believe this so strongly, what effect the listener has on that conversation. Whether it's something like a podcast, for me, whether it's something like taking a walk outdoors, and starting a conversation with, with what could be a total stranger and where that, mm. where that moves to, I am so very willing and accepting to do that. Um, mm. I guess I would very much consider myself an extrovert, and introverts maybe not so much. It's like you have your life, I'll have my life. Let's, let's just put our – my hand is out like you've seen me push you away. It just reflectively went out like that where my hand goes out, but instead of looking at the palm, I'm, I'm at the back of my hand, I'm looking at the front of my hand, and I'm going, come this way, follow me. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's what makes humans so interesting. And um, based on how you understand yourself, who you are today, and I, see, I hear you as a very reflective person, Knowing what you know about yourself today, what advice would you have given your younger self knowing what you know today? Well, it's funny you should say that because I just wanted to add this little thing because my dog yes. has been quietly sitting on the deck and mm-hmm. she came in just like before you started saying what you've just said and she came mm-hmm. to me and she gave me a kiss and then she went to sit behind me. And I was <laughs> going to say, you know, she, she, we had her four years before John died. I can't even imagine how my uh, grieving would have been uh, without her love and companionship. And um, so what popped into my head when you asked me the question was, I would say to my younger self, you should have had a dog earlier because <laughs> it's such a wonderful form of being loved. I've, I had cats a lot, but cats are different. You love them, but they don't always love you in the way a dog does. And, um, That's so funny. And I try not to. Uh, uh, that that was just what popped into my head because she kissed me. But um, yes. what would I say to my younger self? Uh, you know, I had a pretty hard life because I chose not to take medication. But one thing I wouldn't say to me, I'm not saying to other people because I think medication can be so helpful in things like in light mood swings and things. I think my extremely unusual life is a potential gift to people. And um, so I wouldn't say that. What would I say? 
don't really know. I like, you know what I would say? I, you yeah, know what, what I would say? say? Hearing what I've heard you say through this whole time together, I would hear you saying to yourself, never give up. Because that's how right. I hear you. I hear you as a resilient woman. Mm. And, you know, we've talked about this because, as you know, I am also a widow. Yeah. And my husband lived by it is what it is. It used to annoy me um, because I would want <laughs> right. to say, yeah, but, and he would say, no, it is what it is, adapt. Mm. And right. while that isn't a message I would have given my younger self, I didn't need to adapt. My life seemed very wonderful. But I would say that to my older self, it is what it is. You do need to adapt. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you have a dog. I will have had my Miss Kitty will be one year with me on this Thursday. And I would agree with oh, you. No. I had a dog when I was a child. We had cats as a family with my children. I adopt. And let me tell you how she shows me she loves me. She doesn't lick me like a dog does. But in the <laughs> evening, when I am in bed watching TV, she is on top of my body, looking straight <laughs> into my face, drooling mm-hmm. as I pet her. And I know oh. she loves me. <laughs> yeah. So there you have yeah. it. Isn't that so funny? Oh, my goodness. Yes, um, animals. So, you know, that, that does bring some, some, somebody, something into my life as well. And Mm. that brings me some balance. In these last few minutes together, Mary, if you had to say how you balance your life, how would you say you find balance in your life between all the things that you do? Well, my particular way of finding balance is a bit unusual in that I'm open every day to hearing what spiritual forces guiding me want me to do. And, you know, I have my things I have to do, like everybody does. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, th- th- because I'm just so led in everything I do, it ends up being kind of balanced. I don't, I don't get, um, not saying I don't ever get upset, but I don't get stressed out. I, I'm not somebody who has a kind of external job to go out to, so I don't have to do that. <laughs> and I'm yeah. always learning things. You know, I'm always taking courses, and some of it's, you know, official for keeping my license up, but but I take a lot of things just out of interest. And um, uh, what else do I do? And, you know, when I'm in, I I live partly in Rosarito where my friend who died and partly here in Topanga. So in both places, you know, here I'm in the nature of wooded hills and and Mm. there I'm right by a beach. Um, So, you know, I, I walk and I enjoy the beauty of God's creation, like really deeply enjoy it. I bet. And I love I love people. I love talking to people. And a lot of that now is on Zoom rather than in person. Yes, unfortunately. But, but still, there's still a, a connection there. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, I just, I just, uh, I do really enjoy my life a lot now. And it's great being balanced and not, not right. having a depression anymore. I bet you meditate. 
I I wish I did. I wish I did more. I do it in mm-hmm. a different kind of way, I guess, because I, um, I think about God a lot and I use my cards a lot, my collage cards. You know, if I want to understand something, I do a card reading and that's a, like a meditative thing because you pull out the card and you think, well, okay, what does that mean? And it's like wonderful how uh, related to what's going on it is. And so I, that's the kind of form of meditation, I think. I I agree, and you know, everybody does that in their own way. Uh, I Mm. I take a yoga class online because we can't meet in person, and Mm. I recognize the importance of taking a deep breath and being grateful and acknowledging it, not not just inside your head, but speaking it. It's the first things out of my mouth in the morning it really is by just feeling grateful and you know i would have never been doing what i'm doing now if my husband hadn't passed away i would have Mm. been doing i would have been living a much different lifestyle but i have found balance in my life by doing exactly what you and i are doing right now which is having a meaningful conversation including things that other people can find helpful for them in whatever way they choose. And that is a joy. That is a joy for me. And I'm so thankful, Mary, that you've spent this hour with me and having us get to know about your John and how important he continues to be in your life. (laughs) And for those of us that maybe don't have that, spouse that husband or that wife you know this is just a reminder that am i why is my hand over my heart um it's mm-hmm. a reminder that we can bring them into our spirit and clearly mm. that's what you've done mary and i'm so grateful yeah. for this time together and for you sharing your love story with myself and with our listeners thank you so very much well, thank you so much for the invitation. Like, I, it is, you know, one, for people who are widows, I don't know if you found this much, uh, you know, or widowers, that found the hardest thing was that you wanted to talk about the person, which I was lucky enough to have a grief group, and people don't want to hear about the person who died. And I would just encourage anyone who's lost someone, especially so many people who've lost people through COVID, like, see if you can find a grief group. Because, yes. or, 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 or a friend or, or, or a therapist, because it's very healing to be able to talk about the person as much as you want, you know, with, by people who are, are, are sympathetic. And there is actually a very wonderful resource called grief.org. There's a wonderful person called David Kessler who works with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and he is so compassionate, and he offers so many things uh, to people who are grieving. And um, you, you, you turn, in time, you turn the loss into remembering the love, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's very painful for a while. And mm-hmm. I think that's worth mentioning on Valentine's Day because, you know, you've given too. me a lot of joy today by being able to, I still really like talking about John. You know? Well, of course and you do. Got, and, and Mary, here, let me just say this as we say goodbye. And that is when you yeah. finally get this one-act show done, and you are ready to yeah. take it to the stage, we will need to speak yeah. again. 
so that people can know how to find you. I would love that. But for now, I will let you enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Thank you very much once again for joining me. For all of you that have listened, I hope that you've enjoyed this show as well. Tell your friends. People, this was an important show for people to hear, and I will let you go on about your day, and thank you once again for being such an outstanding guest. Bye, everybody. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, bye.